As you take your seats, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word back to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 17 through 20. We come this morning to what I believe is the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. Everything that we have been looking at in the Beatitudes and what we have looked at in terms of our identity and calling as being salt and light within this world, where, where the world sees our good works, even those who revile us, even those who persecute us, that they see our good works and glorify our God. That all of that has led up to this paragraph. And then the rest of the sermon, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is going to be Jesus expanding and giving specific examples of what he talks about right here in this paragraph. Now, what's interesting is as I looked at uh, different sources uh, with regards to this paragraph, because this paragraph um, is one of the most hotly debated and written about paragraphs. Um, and... One of the reasons I think that is, is because people don't seem to see what Jesus is emphasizing and are getting caught up in, in something that Jesus is not attempting to address, and then they leave out what Jesus is attempting to address. And so even for you, as we read through this, you may hear some ideas here and you're like, ooh, I can't wait to see what he does with these. And I may not touch them at all. Because what Jesus is going for here is verse 20. And what he says in verses 17 through 19 are said not to provide some kind of abstract theological discussion on the relationship of the law to the Christian. Okay, what he is talking about is what kind of righteousness is to be seen in God's people. And he has a very specific type of righteousness that is not what we're shooting for. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, help us this morning when it is always difficult to truly open up our hearts and minds to let your word have its way with us. 
it can especially be difficult when the topic is hypocrisy. And so, Lord, help us to listen. And, Lord, help me to communicate and help me to be gentle so that we will take the risk of letting you filter our lives, not only according to the word that that you caused to be written and recorded and protected for us, but the word made flesh who dwells within us. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the relationship? Look, I've gone over like 12 different introductions, and I'm picking one right now that I hadn't even gone over, so this is number 13. Roger, I told you I'd do this, and I'm sorry from the beginning. But what is the relationship? Between our holiness, our message, and our effectiveness in the mission of the church. What is the relationship of of our holiness, our message, and our effectiveness in the mission? Of the church. Well, a lot of times in Western society, people function according to what is often referred to as the rhetorical triangle that there should be logos, ethos, and pathos. Please don't say pathos unless you're being purposely funny, because that is funny. Logos, ethos, and pathos, that there is to be the word, logos, that there is to be content that is directed to the reason of the person to whom you're speaking, that, that the information that you provide has good content and it has a good arrangement in order to be good, solid communication, in order to make a logical case for whatever you're talking about. But, but they also said in, in ancient philosophy that the, the, a good argument by itself is not enough, not enough, that in addition to a good argument, there needs to be ethos in the one who is speaking, that the one who is speaking, his status or her authority in, in what she says and the life that she lives can either back up her logic or back up his logic or it can get in the way. Making the audience more likely to trust the argument is going to come from someone having a life that can say the things that they're saying and they'd be taking seriously. If you're trying to make a case, for example, for For something serious, you don't want to dress as a clown, right? Because the clown appearance gets in the way of the content of what's being said. So there needs to be logos, there needs to be ethos, and there needs to be pathos. That you're not just appealing to the mind, but that you are appealing to the emotions. 
that you are appealing to the humanity of the person to whom you're speaking. Now, in Western society, often this rhetorical triangle of logos, ethos, and pathos has been put forward, and this is taught in seminaries too, by the way, that this is put forward where people say, if, you're, if you want your message to, to you know, be effective and you want that to, to win the day, then you want to have all three of those together. When I have been talking about the issue of the image problem and the self-awareness gap of the church in America and the challenges that has created for us in terms of our mission, what I am not saying is that unless we are able to get these three things together, then people won't come to know Jesus. I am not saying that. When I speak about the credibility problem that the church has, I am not saying that the credibility problem gets in the way of God's sovereign intentions and purposes and plans. Okay? What did we see when we were looking at the sermon series in Jonah? In Jonah chapter 1, as he is fleeing away from God, as he gets confronted by these horrible, wicked Gentile sailors about, well, what God do you serve? Even in the midst of his rebellion, and even in the midst of the arrogance with which he speaks, he is able to say the one true God. And at the end of that chapter, unlike Jonah, who seems to think he is serving the one true God, who are the only people that are shown actually serving him? It's the Gentile sailors who make an offering to him and acknowledge him and worship Yahweh as the one true God. So even in the midst of Jonah's rebellion, even in the midst of Jonah's sinful attitude and his arrogance and superiority, even within the sinfulness of him thinking, and by the way, representing Israel as a whole, thinking that his plan is better than God's plan, even in the midst of all of that, despite himself, God uses his witness to accomplish his sovereign purposes in calling those Gentiles to himself. So are we limited in our effectiveness with regards to calling sinners out of darkness and into the light of Christ, are we limited to only being as effective as we are righteous? No. Just to be clear, no. God has used donkeys. God has used Jonah. God has even used me a time or two. So that's not what we're talking about. That's not what Jesus is talking about. So if we're not talking about the relationship of the holiness of God's people in congruence to the message that, that we preach and the lives that we live, if what we're not talking about is the effectiveness of the ministry and of the mission 
Why are we talking about it? What's the big deal then? If God is not limited by my sin, then why are you talking so much about acknowledging the the post-Christian drift that has taken place and the fact that within that drift, the reviling and even some of the persecution that we are now experiencing is not solely or exclusively because of the post-Christian drift. That much of the reviling and some of the persecution is the direct result that we haven't been good Christians. We have been jerks. We have assumed a, a level of power and we, we have attempted to use the ways of the world to accomplish the things of the heavenly places. We have, like the world around us and the culture around us that has become disenchanted because of the secularism that has risen within our culture, where even the secularists are saying there's a problem with our worldview because what we are realizing is the result of what we're saying is that things are dying around us. Where even secular philosophers are talking about the need for re-enchantment within the universe and the culture for atheists. What I think has happened is that not only has the culture around us become disenchanted because of the atheism and the secularism, the church has become disenchanted. Because we are no longer enamored by our triune God. We so often become just as enamored with the things of this world, the values of this world, the ways of this world, the goals and, and, and means of this world. We so often become just as enamored with those things as those who reject God. And so when the church becomes disenchanted, our wonder of God begins to disappear. And it becomes a lot easier to, to want to use God in order to accomplish purposes and means and goals. Now, how do I know that? Well, because I've read the Bible. And one of the consistent problems that God's people have throughout all of redemptive history is not heeding the warning that he gave us from the beginning. I've redeemed you from bondage and slavery in Egypt, and I'm going to send you into the promised land, and I'm going to go with you. I'm going to dwell with you. My glory will be present among you. But when you go into that land, don't become enamored with their gods. When you start to experience all the blessings that I'm going to bring you, when you're experiencing all the milk and honey, when you're your, your, your uh, wives are having children and, and your crops are producing abundance and when the grapes are, 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 are readily available and wine is flowing, when you're experiencing all these blessings that I have for you, don't forget me 
and don't become enamored with the false gods of the peoples. And what has God's people done throughout the ages while living amongst the Gentiles? We have a history of taking God's blessings for granted. We have a history of, of uh, presuming upon God and turning him into a cosmic bellhop with our prayers. We have a tendency to become more enamored with the things of this world. And we have a tendency to chase after the other gods. And this has been the tendency of the people of God going back to the very beginning where even Adam and Eve chased after the snake. God is redeeming a people. And when he redeems his people, he doesn't immediately suck his people out of this world and draw them into the world to come. He leaves his people here. And what we have been looking at here in the Beatitudes and in this identity and calling of salt and light is that our purpose in this world is that we are ambassadors of the greater world. We are ambassadors of the transcendent world. And if the world is going to find re-enchantment, it's going to come because we are living lives that are based on the transcendent realities that have become yes and amen to us in Jesus Christ. In Christ, we have received all the blessings of the heavenly places. In Christ, we have been made alive, raised up, and seated with him in the heavenly places. This is our true reality. This is our true citizenship. And when we live in the enchantment of what we have in Jesus Christ, we are able to show the world that there is something better, something that transcends this world. This world, which is under curse, and even though there is still goodness, even though there is still truth, even though there is still beauty, it is under the curse of God. It is not going to remain. It is going to rust and decay and be destroyed and pass away. Now, if you and I become disenchanted and live for the temporal, then what is, who is left? To show the world that there is something more. That's what it means for us to be the salt of the heavenly places that bring savor to this cursed world. That provides the protection against the germs of this world. Protection against the the curse of this world. Where being salt is, is what brings and provides and protects life. And if we're not living according to the transcendent realities of the life of our triune God, then where else are they going to find it? If we don't embrace our calling and identity as the light of the world, the light by which those who are trapped in darkness see light in order to escape the darkness. If we don't let our light shine, where else are they going to find that? 
Now, the answer is actually easy. God will somehow do it, as he always has. So does that mean it doesn't matter whether or not we live out being salt or light? Does it matter? If God can use a donkey in order to bring light, if God can use Jonah to be salt, right? If God can do these things, what does it matter about how we live and the relationship of how we live and the witness we provide? Well, here's why it matters. You sinned, you chased after the other gods, you took me for granted, all those things that I warned you not to do, you did. So I poured out my wrath upon you for the blood that you had shed in the land, for the idols with which you had defiled it. I scattered you among the nations, and you were dispersed through the countries in accordance with your ways and your deeds I judged you. But then... Even when you came into the nations, when I sent you in judgment and exile, even when you went out there, you profaned my holy name. So that even the unbelievers who saw my people living in their presence, they said, well, these are the people of Yahweh, and yet they had to go out of his land. Now, in the ancient Near East, that means that Yahweh must not be a very strong God if he couldn't keep his people in his land. And so what does God say? I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned in the land and among the nations. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has profaned among the nations in which you have profaned among them. Now here's what's going on. They profaned God's name. They took the Lord's name in vain. They profaned it in the land. So God executed the curses of the covenant that were promised for if they broke the covenant. And he sent them out of the land. And when they went out of the land, rather than that leading them to take a step back and say, well, maybe we need to rethink some things. Maybe we need to rethink where our hearts and minds, uh, where they are. And maybe we need to rethink how we're using our strength. Instead, what they did was they went out into exile and they kept profaning God's name. They did not respond to his fatherly judgment. Instead, they kept making it worse. 
And so what God is promising here is, I'm going to bring you back, and I'm going to put you back in the land. You're going to come back. But it's not going to be because of you. I'm going to protect my name by bringing you back here so that you're not profaning my name all out there. You see what's happening? What is it that the Pharisees want in first century Palestine? What are they looking for in a Messiah? Are they looking for someone to be the answer to the Father for their lack of righteousness? Or are they looking for a conqueror who will rid them of the plague of the Roman Empire? You see, what's happening at the time in which Jesus is ministering is Ezekiel 36 has been fulfilled. They were brought back to the land. But guess what? The enemies were still there. And they were still dealing with being ruled, reigned over by their enemies. Now, they didn't understand that. If we're, if we're in our land, then, then we're supposed to have milk and honey, and we're supposed to have safety from our enemies and our Our wives are supposed to be having children, and that's not what they were experiencing. They were back in the land, but they weren't getting the blessings, and it was confusing for them. And what happened during the intertestamental period is that a group rose up within Israel to say, you know why we are still experiencing being ruled over by these foreigners and by these enemies? It's because... We, we have, we're not righteous enough. If we can become more righteous, then God will see that and he'll bring the Messiah. That's what their expectation was. And so the development of groups like the scribes and the Pharisees actually first started out with very good intentions. They recognized that historically Israel had not done a good job of responding to God's judgments with repentance. And they're like, we need to become more repentant. But over the course of a couple hundred of years, the scribes and Pharisees had become this ruling elite class of, of religious leaders within Israel who, who were not known for a, a true desire of, of growing in righteousness and leading others to grow in righteousness in order for them to live up to what God had asked of them in his law. What had God asked? I've redeemed you from bondage and slavery. Serve me and serve your neighbor. They had gotten away from that. And the result is that the, the, the ideas in Israel at the time of Jesus' ministry, the ideas of, well, what does righteousness look like? You know what the answer that the normal everyday person would say? Well, you look at the scribes and the Pharisees. 
What does it look like to be righteous? Well, you, you look like them. What's the problem with that? What's the problem, what's the problem with wanting to look to the scribes and the Pharisees in order to understand what being righteous looks like? Jesus told a story that the Pharisees and scribes, when they came to him, Jesus uh, and they said to him, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, then he need not, uh, and that he need not uh, need to honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Let me explain that. The Ten Commandments clearly say, honor your father and mother. And what that meant within this generation is that you should use your resources to make sure that they have food, to make sure that they have shelter, to make sure they have what they need in order to live an honorable life. And what the Pharisees would do is they, instead of using their money to do that, they would give their money to the temple in order to make themselves look really, really extra holy. Look how committed I am to the temple. Look how committed I am to God. And the result was, well, because I gave it to, the, because I gave it to God, I, I don't have it to help you. And what does Jesus say? Well, God never asked you to give money to him if it meant sacrificing your parents. What you're supposed to do is you sacrifice in order to honor me by honoring them. But do you see what happened? They had switched things around. They had put their traditions above and contrary to God's actual stated word and they did so thinking look how holy i am and they did so creating the persona that the people around them were thinking and saying look how holy they are For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Later in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides! 
who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which, uh, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Beloved, the problem that Jesus is addressing is that the same old hypocrisy that has always been in the people of God is in the people of God there at the time of his earthly ministry. And the result is that those who are considered righteous and those who are considered to be the examples of righteousness are leading everyone to hell. 
And what Jesus is about to do is spend the rest of the sermon saying, you have heard it said. Well, who's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees have said, fill in the blank, but I tell you this. And this is the rest of the sermon. Jesus correcting the hypocrisy of his people. Not because his mission will stand or fall on whether or not his people are genuine or hypocritical. His mission is going to be successful. But to be part of his people is to be those who bear his name. And he takes his name so much more seriously than you or I could ever imagine. The very holiness of God which is the only attribute repeated three times in a row in the superlative of holy, is about God's utter and complete and eternal devotion to himself. Because he is truth. He is goodness. He is beauty. And it would be wrong, it would be sin for him not to exalt his name above all names. Beloved, the privilege that you and I have as God's people is that where we could glorify and exalt God's name when he judges us at the end, Like Philippians 2 says, instead he has given us the privilege of glorifying his name and enjoying it forevermore. And so the reason that the church needs to focus in on this image problem that we have and this self-awareness gap that we have is because the sins that has created our image problem, it is an affront to God's name. And when we want to act like the reviling and the persecution is because of the world and not because of us, then just like the generations of old, it keeps us from repentance. And what does God tell? What does Jesus tell the church in Revelation 2? When a church has lost its first love, and if it refuses to repent, what does he say? Repent, or I will take your lampstand away. 
do we want to shine as the light of Christ? Well, Jesus doesn't need us to accomplish that. But he gives us the privilege of participating. How we choose to participate will either lead us to get to exalt God and to express the superiority of his glory, of his grace, of his mercy. Or else we can pursue what we want, think God exists to give us what we want, even convince ourselves like the Pharisees that we are doing this in service to him and lose our privilege of being his light and of being his salt. And what Jesus tells us and what we're going to focus in on is that what Jesus is trying to do for you and for me is expose our tendencies and specific ways that we practice hypocritical righteousness so that we can repent of these things and strive to embody more and more regularly his truth, his goodness, and his beauty as he has made us ambassadors of the heavenly places who get to represent him as those who bear his name here on earth. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is it is so easy to, to kick back into spiritual neutrality and kind of coast our way through things and take you for granted. It can be really easy to to rely upon the cultural structures that at one time here in America were definitely more advantageous for promoting a, a Christian worldview. But help us not to be lazy and help us not to, to be in neutral. But help us to take the words of Christ deep within our souls that we would cultivate and, and manifest the blessedness of the virtues that you yourself embodied for us, that you have communicated for us in the Beatitudes. And Lord, help us to do this in such a countercultural way that it will lead to us being better, embodying your goodness, so that even those who don't like us, that those who stand against us, those who have already attempted to relegate us to the sidelines and would love to see us go away, that even they would be able to see our good works in which your name is glorified even by those 
who hate you. Lord, help us to do what Jesus is telling us to do and to start by looking at ourselves before we look at our neighbor. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.